have a dope day. Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan, and today with us today is Nina Pick, who is a poet and editor who is passionate about working on the intersection of depth psychology, radical ecology, and spirituality. She is the author of two chapbooks, Al Luz and Leaving the Lecture on Dance, and editor of The Garden Says, forthcoming from Princeton Architectural Press, the recipient of the 2016 Meza Refuge Poetry Fellowship. Her work has appeared in journals such as um, Ariane, Bombay Gin, Tool Review, Stone Canoe, and more. Um, she holds an MA in Counseling Psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute, an MA in Comparative Literature from UC Berkeley, and uh, a BA with Concentration in Comparative Literature from the Galilean School, Galton, Galton School, yeah, uh, School of Individual Study, NYU, and orientation uh, ordination from the uh, Kohenek Hebrew Priestess Institute. Yeah, I mean, excellent, excellent. Welcome, welcome. Great, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, great, great. So uh, let's start a little bit about your story, telling a little bit about uh, where you come from and, and your uh, upbringing. So where were you born? Oh, yeah, I was born in, in um, New York, in the city. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Which borough? Um, in Manhattan. Manhattan? Oh, mm-hmm. great, great. Excellent. Yeah, and Excellent. I, I grew up in, um, in Park Slope until I was um, like a toddler, and then we moved upstate to, um, to Utica. To Utica? Okay, mm-hmm. cool, cool. And uh, now you're living in Connecticut, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. So uh, tell me a little bit about growing up and uh, was poetry encouraged or when did you start getting into poetry? Sure, yeah. Um, Definitely. I mean, I remember writing my first poem. I think it was about my cat when I Uh was um, five or six and it had an illustration (laughs) of a cat. Um, And yeah, I I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I kept a journal starting in mm, maybe late elementary school with poems that I, and then continue that through high school. Of course, you know, looking back on them, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so it's always interesting It's a fun journals. experience. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. always interesting people just think the world's divided between people who keep journals and people who just seem to remember things. I don't know, like, uh, you know, and, and how long did you keep the journal for? How long how, in your life did you keep the journal? Yeah, I've been you doing it, it since. Yeah, yeah. I write down my dreams every morning. Um, I've been trying more to write poetry out by hand. Uh-huh. Um, and I, because I went through a phase where I was writing mostly on the computer, but yeah. I wanted more of an intimate connection, like an embodied connection with the language. So I've been trying to, you know, just actually do poetry more in my journal as well. And then I just, you know, kind of free write also. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I, 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 for a little while, I was experimenting writing on a typewriter, like an old fashioned typewriter. But then a lot of those documents I lost. So, you know, like there's always the danger with uh, pre writing or writing off these things that, you know, they, they end up getting, you have to really have, keep a good filing system, I think. I don't know, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little more about uh, kind of your family. How, do you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. Only child, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, I come from um, a family of, um, you know, definitely big big readers. My uh-huh. my father's a physicist, and a, he was a math professor for many years. And my mother's a social worker, uh, therapist. And, yeah, so I just grew up in a house. Um, absolutely just like full to the brim with books yeah. um, on everything from physics to all kinds of spirituality and, you know, a lot of literature. And yeah, I was definitely encouraged to, to be a reader um, as a child. And 
um, you know, it was a pretty quiet family being an only child also. So reading was always, um, you know, entertainment and companionship as well. Yeah, what did you read? What kind of stuff did you read? Oh, I think all of the favorites. I love the Chronicles of Narnia yeah. and Anne of Green Gables. Um, you know, yeah, probably um, oh, Wrinkle in Time. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. And I, I still go back and I reread them all the time. They um, remain, yeah, big um, kind of companions in my life. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, growing up, I read uh, a lot of the Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz has a whole series behind. A lot of people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. And I read like a lot of the series in the Frank Thompson had written mm-hmm. a lot of the sequels. I'd read a lot of that, so that was my main focus rather than Carlson. I only really got into. I think I started reading them in college or something. So much later in life, yeah. but it's very interesting to see the 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 play between different fantasy novels that people read as a child and such. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, yeah, I was really into. Um, uh, Tolkien as well. Yeah, so, that's yeah, good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. So, um, so now, like, growing up, uh, like, what, how did you start to evolve into the the poetry and such? And how did your poetry evolve? And what kind of poets did you read? Or, um, you know? let's see. I think growing up, I was really into reading Neruda mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, as I got a little older, I, I read, you know, like Anne Sexton, um, Sharon Olds, more of their kind of Mm, I guess confessional narrative poets um and then yeah and then more recently um I've definitely I like reading poets with a strong focus on ecology or yeah. spirituality and like less poets you know less of a focus on telling a story yeah you know, necessarily uh do you know I, I I'm starting to teach myself a little bit about because I I teach myself a little bit of language poetry versus other schools of poetry language mm-hmm. poets do you consider yourself a language poet or uh, do you know a little bit like more focused on the language rather than like creating narrative, like as you're saying, Definitely. Like creating language, yeah. uh, more language play and yeah. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I I feel really focused on like the musicality of the poem mm. and also, you know, what, how blank spaces speak as yeah. well. And in a way, you know, it's always going to be channeled through, uh, you know, our own experience as writers, but yeah. also trying to step out of it. Mm. a bit and um oh, oh, kind of try to open it up yeah. as well from moving it just from just the personal into hopefully like a you know kind of creating some cracks in that you know i mean I, like it's interesting we met at the buddhist poetry festival yeah and i think that that's you know that kind of um that philosophy and also that practice has infused my writing a lot because you know there's only so far that a story can get you and in the end it's ultimately i mean i think one's own story becomes kind of mm, a little tired or boring right it's yeah. really useful to work through it but i think that there's something beyond story exactly. and that's what i'm trying to work towards yeah yeah Good, good. Um, and then Sorry. in terms of your question about moving into poetry, I mean, I yeah. think it was, um, you know, definitely inspired by um, in high school doing a lot of theater, Shakespeare, and being in a band with some friends and, you know, being surrounded by a lot of music. And then later I went on and I actually studied, you know, literature more academically. And I think um, since then, the practice has been letting go of the academic background you know so um i mean it was very useful to bring it in and then i think it it after i, I went to grad school and studied literature i i couldn't read anything for a while you know so it was it's been a practice of coming back actually into the joy of it yeah and the, so. the, the innocence or the beginner's mind yeah it's good it's good the zen uh teaching of having a beginner's mind we talked a little bit about that in other episodes about how 
the more experience you get with something, the less joy you get out of it. And uh, you seem like people feel like they're more connoisseurs of very specific, highly specific, uh, and more and more specific things rather than approaching things with the beginner's mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I feel really grateful in a, um, a way to have decided to do the masters instead of an MFA mm-hmm. in poetry. I did a masters in comparative literature. Yeah, because it kept um, what needed to be sacred sacred. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't mix like my creative work or my spiritual work with my academic work and so after I um, left academia I was able to kind of come back to that center and find that it was still more or less like untouched and I didn't I didn't have the same kind of critical mind about that kind of work as I did about like my like academic writing oh good good so about uh, spirituality and such now um, why don't you talk a little bit about your spiritual upbringing and how you we're taught in a spiritual tradition, such like that. Sure, yeah. yeah so, um, um, my family's Jewish, but I was raised fairly secular in large part um, because where we grew up, there just wasn't um, like the kind of access to the kind of um, I would say like Jewish community that really resonated with my for my mother. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I grew up after. Being Utica, we moved to Western Massachusetts. So I grew up in a small town in the Berkshires. And um, yeah, there just wasn't, um, I, you know, the Jewish community, I think, was was pretty conservative or not not really resonant for her. So I ended up having, she, she was very committed to offering me exposure to a lot of different kind of spiritual trajectories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, she was involved in everything from Buddhism, Sufism, different forms of Judaism, interest in Christianity, et cetera. So I, you know, I think I, I was gifted with um, getting to see like the wealth of her experience. And at the same time, I t- it didn't connect for me at all. Um, and I, I was completely disinterested. I think I dropped out of like Buddhist school and Hebrew school and, you know, it, was yeah. just, it didn't connect for me. And um, until many years later, when I was living in San Francisco, and I went, it was, I was in my mid-20s to um, this very radical queer synagogue in the mission. And I just went and I was, I just found myself, I was in tears through the whole service because it was felt for the first time I was connecting to a living Judaism and one that was inclusive. And they changed the language of the prayers so that it wasn't, um, you know, patriarchal the way that a lot of um, Jewish prayer can be. And it wasn't um, pro-Israel the way that a lot of Jewish prayer can be. It was much more inclusive, really open to um, all kinds of people, and especially um, the queer community in San Francisco. And um, just hearing my friend um, who knew all the prayers, like I was sitting next to her, she had brought me, and she was singing these prayers, and it just touched something like this longing inside me that I didn't know I had. Um, And I was really healing. And so that was, I would say, the beginning of my spiritual practice in, in Judaism. Yeah, I think definitely for me as well, like, uh, you know, going up in a kind of liberal, secular family or like liberal in their interpretation of Hinduism, kind of going out there and making personal connections with yourself. I think you read down uh, Dream Guy, and this is one of the things that inspires you. And you mentioned about journaling about your dreams and such. And, you know, a lot of people kind of, I think, have this attitude towards spirituality that, you know, it's something outside of yourself, but I think make that inner connection and, and really having a dialogue is very important. What I'm hearing from what you're saying is that connecting on the heart level. 
exactly. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're talking about more dreams and how they guide you and such, yeah. Sure, yeah. So that's been, um, you know, co- going back to my upbringing, um, <clears throat> there was always just a focus on dreams in my family or my mother, you know, at breakfast before school, just feel like, what you dream? And yeah. <laughs> I didn't really like to talk about yeah. it at the time, but um, I found my way to, um, I was in Jungian analysis for a number of years and um, around that same time I actually I studied depth psychology um, while I was getting my master's in counseling at Pacifica Graduate Institute um, which is a, a Jungian um, oriented program and um, so I started both in um, my my personal life and just kind of in, in a more academic interest um, becoming um, really fascinated with symbols and myth and the way that um, they speak to us through dreams. And I've just been amazed because I often have um, prescient dreaming. Um, I I dream about things that before they happen or places I've never been to and then go to that place. Um, and so I find that when I attune to them by writing them down every day, um, I start to see patterns. They'll give me a warning. They'll give me guidance. Move in this direction. Move in, don't move in that direction. Um, and interestingly, you know, they really help me make decisions in my life. Um, mm-hmm. One thing you and I had spoke about before was I recently recently left my job as an editor, and um, a kind of recurrent theme that had happened in in several dreams over the past couple of years is like um, dreams of having my hands cut off, oh. and um, and another in which I was eating glass. And for me, those spoke to, like, I was losing my voice as a writer because all my creative energy was going into working as an editor and I was losing my own creative center. And so for me, like, that image of, like, not being able to speak because there's glass in my mouth or not being able to write because I'm, I've lost my hands were telling me, like, you need to change your path. Like, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're losing your own embodiment and you're losing your commitment to your creative practice. Yeah. And uh, we talked a little bit about how, um, you know, society in general seems to be kind of moving towards a kind of more, you know, consumerism or knee-jerk reactions, and we want to be able to connect with that, our creative centers and creative core. So um, one of the questions of the pre-interview questions was about uh, what do you think you can guide society about um, towards a more genuine place, or how can you guide society towards a more genuine place in your writing and such uh, by connecting to that core? So we talked a little bit about um, kind of, you say about glossing over deep truths and such, so you can talk a little bit about that, yeah. Sure, yeah, so I think, um, I mean, this is, I think speaks to the wider political realm as well, yeah. right? It's like there's a lot of talking, but not a lot of um, uh, deep truth-telling, Yeah. right? And so I think that's one thing that is such a critical part of our work as poets is we're com- really committed to... I think I think of it kind of as like rock bottom truth, right? Mm. And um, I think Thoreau talks about this. He has this great image of the river, and I'm at the bottom of of the river. Eventually, you hit you know you hit that like cool, cold rock bottom, right? And I I think that when I read a, a really true poem, that's what it feels like. Yeah, you know, like it just cuts through all the muck, yeah. and then you land at this place that's it, it feels like cool and deep and true. And that that's, um, I would say, my commitment as a poet. Again, it's, it's, it's not the easiest thing necessarily. Yeah. not like every poem by any means uh-huh. gets there, but it feels like a ongoing practice or like a 
something to keep striving towards. Um, and yeah, I mean, I also feel it really acutely in my personal life. It's like one of the things that bothers me most is being in a room full of people where everyone's pretending yeah. that, um, that, that something's not what it is. And um, I think this comes back to my upbringing. I mentioned it, you know, and the questionnaire, but, you know, coming from a Holocaust background, yeah. there's always something in the room in, you know, I think in a Holocaust family, right, that it's it's just impossible to put words to that experience. And so the, the um, really the way that felt as a child was that there was always just this, like, enormous cloud in the space that, you know, as a child I didn't have words for, I didn't know what it was. And um, as I got older, it became more and more important to, I wanted to name it, you know, because I was, I was constantly reading. I was really fascinated with reading about the Holocaust. My father had a lot of books. So I read books for children and also his books kind of surreptitiously. And I think I, what I wanted to do was to name the thing, right? And to name the thing that would explain a lot of um, family dynamics um, or what would explain this kind of like unnameable grief. And um, as I got older, that desire to name whatever it is, whether it's, you know, the immensity of trauma or whether it's um, some intimate moment in a personal relationship, like that, that continues to be a practice, right? Yeah. And I, I feel really committed to like not classing over situations and actually being in dynamics, um, whether, you know, in community or work or relationally or whatever where there's something big that's not being spoken it just makes me crazy and i would i would try to disrupt that yeah, yeah so i know i had the one one of my most powerful experiences child experiences was to visit auschwitz mm -hmm. and uh it was a very tremendous uh you know just a very powerful emotionally and you know i think that when you visit it for those who have visited it um you know they kind of they have this technique of you have the earphones on and they have the the speech going. You can hear the um, moderator t telling you what's going on. So you don't linger in any particular place. You kind of move through it pretty quickly. They keep you in a good pace, and that kind of helped with the emotions because I think it's very powerful to see the place where so many people had lost their lives and such, mm -hmm. and uh, to keep moving and and keep keep it going and and you yeah, press it after. But uh, it's it's very powerful um, to be able to. Uh, bear witness to these these atrocities and 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 remember them and remember the in the sacred space that they produce in, in the self and in, in, the, in the environment yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah I, I haven't been um both my my grandfather and my grandmother on my father's side were oh. um prisoners in Auschwitz and yeah. I, I haven't gone in part because um yeah it's how do we dip into that grief and as you're saying right hold it and experience it and hold it in a way that's sacred yeah. without being completely subsumed by it, you know? Yeah. And um, I feel like that's for, been for me, like a, a big part of my adulthood has been like looking back at like the ancestral trauma and the trauma that I feel like I just inherited from them that I feel through my whole body and um, go into it enough to honor it, right? And hear what it has to say and do that work of healing, but also having you know, in like my 20s str struggled a lot with um, like ongoing depression, yeah. you know, experience it in a real way, in a way that's true and without getting 
um, just absolutely like consumed with hopelessness. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a struggle. I think that um, when we connect to these these potential power sources of our ancestors and such, they can be very powerful, the power sources for us, but also they can be, they bring with it a lot of this, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know, it's just complications, you know, like when, you know, like we have to think about things in a different way and, you know, where sometimes it can be, for me, at least in my own experience, you know, sometimes it can be also disconnecting from, you know, uh, the struggle with uh, aestheticism, you know, going off and, and trying to, you know, cut away from society in order to find oneself and, and find one's voice and that struggle between being in the world and being with the world, but also guiding the world. So that's also, the, I think, the struggle I'm hearing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like a big question ecologically as well, because I think that, you know, the realities of our ecological crisis are so great. Um, that if we were to really see it, like really, really get that and really feel it, we'd just be absolutely broken open in grief, yeah. you know? And I don't think we have the cultural mechanisms um, to, to hold a kind of, like a, a societal-wide or cultural-wide mourning, which is, I think, what needs to happen if we're going yeah. to have any kind of effective move towards change. Yeah, And I think that the issue is that we're, the, there's the the mourning of our ecological losses and also of our of, for all of us our, our great complicity yeah. in ecological crisis we're on a moment by moment day by day basis right just living in our culture we are we are in it and we're sp- responsible all of us you know mm. and I think that we're staying in the surface by going straight to solution right and scientific solution or behavioral solution of like oh I'm going to put my you know, can in the recycling, whatever, yeah. right? Which allows me to skirt on top of the actual deep work of mourning that needs to happen. And I yeah. think if we were to do that deep work, like really be broken open by it, mm-hmm. I think that that's where the change would come from, right? Just in terms of being in, in actual intimate relationship with the earth. Yeah. You know? So I'm here also is that, um, you know, what we're doing is a lot of times we have this echo chamber where we're just kind of echoing or parroting what we're hearing without really rethinking. Um, you know, a lot of times what I hear people do is they, they have their talking points and such, and they tend to stay at these talking points, and they're not really examining the root of where these talking points are coming from and where the context of uh, making a hard connection with saying things in context. You know, a lot of times it just becomes a, um, a parry of just pre-planned moves rather than a deep, honest, organic, connection yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely i mean i think for so many of us we're in a fear place and it's Mm. easier right like you're saying instead of um connecting to that in that heart oriented way that you're describing you know staying in something that's very rational Mm. and like you said like just um kind of following a script Right. Whereas like if we go into that territory of the heart, that's an unknown space, right? That's uncolonized territory. Yeah. And the answers that come from there might be um, really radical and might be really terrifying and might require us to make huge sacrifices or huge changes. And I think on that, like I think our hearts and our bodies know the answer to how to actually mm, really move in relationship to the earth. Um, but we, you know, I think we're just so trained out of that and we live in such a hyper-rational society and our educations have been hyper-rational. And as we got trained out of our bodies and our bodies 
knowing. We also have, that's, I think, in a huge part why we're so disconnected from the earth. Because embodied wisdom is also ecological wisdom, you know, because we're not separate. So why don't we take a moment to listen to a few of your poems, and then uh, that'll give us a little bit of grounding in uh, your work and such, and uh, like how this connects to the, your exploration of this writing, yeah. Sure. So I'm going to read a couple of poems from an unpublished manuscript called The Winter Orchard. And a backstory for this manuscript. Um, so, like, you know, for so many people, um, after the after Trump um, won the election, you know, I was absolutely panicked. And um, I think just as much as anyone caught up in our the whole hysteria and what are we going to do and feeling very called to action. And um, so, for me, just personally, um, the one of my own personal most potent forms of action is I think in writing it just feels like the place where um, I connect with the greater world um, and so I, I started to explore um, in in my writing um, the sense of panic and hopelessness and crisis and loss of faith and um, and the fear and um so this manuscript basically came out in a rush in, um, I would say, 60 days or so following the election. And um, basically, it just it really explores, like, how do we maintain a sense of connection to the sacred and to that place of deep truth um, in a time of um, social and ecological um, crisis? Mm. So this first poem is called Moda'ani, and the title comes from a, like a, a morning prayer of gratitude in the uh, Hebrew liturgy, liturgy. Another morning, another expected catastrophe, the new snow landing on the roof and shaking the house like an earthquake. I wish I could wake with the sense of grace that I once had, singing thanks for another day of life on earth. But beloved as you are to me, dear God, your iris blooming in the terracotta pot, I can't. Okay, this next one's called Given. Given the fact of the matter, the reality of the new normal, the rising oceans and the dying coral, giving the warming winters, the flash flooding, the flickering lives of the wolves, elk, whales. Given the war coming, given our time ending, there is no one to blame. Given the great stream of cause and effect, given the stars upon stars upon stars. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. Hey, this next one's called Climate Crisis. Of the geese flying in graceful formations, each one is the image of the whole. It's V-shape black against the winter sky. They all know where the water lies. They all know at the same time when to change direction. This next one's called Black Ocean. 
And it's about coming from family of immigrants. You know, my father was um, born in the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. immigrated to Australia, and then ultimately to the U.S. And um, thinking about how the blessings, the fact that my family was welcomed to Australia after, you know, surviving the concentration camps and, and they were offered a home there, right? And that my father could then come to the U.S. and have a, um, you know, really feel at home in New York and have a wonderful career here in the university. And um, and then thinking about the way the discourse around immigration, what that sounds like, you know, post-Trump um, coming into power. So yeah. that's where some of these poems come from. Yeah, yeah. Um, Black Ocean. When I came this way before, the sea was golden calm and shimmering out like this for miles. Remember how back then we were not at the bottom of the ocean, but beside it? Do you remember you were a stranger here? Do you remember how welcome you felt you were? This is another poem about, um, it's about uh, deportation. It's called Deportation Liturgy. It is difficult to hear two voices speaking at the same time, but God hears all of it. He hears all our prayers at once. He can hear the prayers in the midst of sirens or in the silence of a cell. Even our screaming, he hears as prayer. Even our rage sounds like prayer. Even our rage at God is prayer to God. And then so, yeah. yeah, let's do one more. We'll one do one more. One okay. more. Yeah, that's it. Then we'll just start talking. Sounds good. Okay. Yeah. So um, I read this last poem called Wild. I want to hear the story of your engagement with reality. The way the air holds you like your favorite sweater. The way each morning you sit at the window and watch your neighbor walk the street into town. Tell me what it is that ties you to the earth. What mountain would you lay your body over to protect? What stream would you stand in to preserve? With what bodies would you lay your body down? When you, child of this earth, finally go wild with grief, what will you do with your love? Thank you, thank you. Very nice. I really uh, connected with the uh, heartfelt appreciation of giving thanks was in the first one the idea of giving thanks and gratitude is so important and in our life i think we we just to talk a little bit about how um to overcome kind of the depression or the or the negative feelings that can come about you know, we're always showing gratitude always connecting with gratitude always connecting with the um idea of prayer and the idea of positivity and the idea i think uh, at the same time i think you know the idea of positivity is sometimes you know, overplayed, you know, always be positive, always be positive. But at the same time, you know, connecting with the thanks, the gratitude is so important in, in our, as a practice, yeah. Absolutely. So, and then um, that connecting interpersonally with, with people and being able to see where they're coming from and be able to see where their story is, where their, um, where their power centers are and being able to make those connections, yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, I feel like that was such an important practice, like in the yeah. anxiety of those early, those first couple of months, you know? Yeah. Because um, I feel that, you know, even now continuing of like, the, the more I'm in the fear and the anxiety, mm. the less I'm connected with the, the beauty of what also is, right? There's both yeah. and like, yes, we're in a time of like, absolute terrifying crisis, you know? And, yeah. um, and the future seems really uncertain. And um, whether that's, you know, the future of our species even, right? As yeah. we create um, a climate that becomes less and less inhabitable yeah. or even just the future in the next couple of years politically, right? But, um, and so that those are truths and also, you know, the, 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 it, the beauty continues and the, yeah. the life force continues, right? And I think that's one thing I was trying to hold in this work was that like, both both are true and like even beyond like in my absolute moments of like total hopelessness right of of us um you know making an uninhabitable um climate for ourselves right thinking about like well even the earth and like the greater scheme of things and like this great wide space of the universe and all stars and planets right like ultimately fundamentally in like the much wider picture like everything's absolutely okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. so like both, both and. Um, and I don't know how to hold both. I mean, I feel like that was a question that it kept on coming up for me in this book too. Of also like when we have moments of extreme crisis and, you know, and, you know, I'm thinking, right, like of the Holocaust or, ge or genocide, right, in general, mm -hmm. is that how do we hold both a sense of God or whatever word you want to use of, of spirit and, or of um, infinite love? And that, right? Yeah. Is genocide other than infinite love? Is it a rip in the fabric? Uh, like, I have absolute faith in the sense of, in in the deep truth of infinite love, right? But like, in those those moments of, of horror and what, you know, or these great, you know, um, our, our human capacity also to, to be absolutely heartless and to destroy um, ourselves and other and others, right? Um, other people, other species, our habitat. Um, I'm so. It seems to me like an unanswerable question of yeah. like, how do we hold that capacity for destruction along with like that the beauty and the continual creation of life for us? Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think it's definitely a struggle that we have that uh, I think all writers, especially writers, especially have to be able to be honest and truthful about the painful places, but also find the, you know, also hold the place of joy and, and humor or joy and kind of surprise and, and um, positivity or like being, creating that, not just falling into despair, but rather bringing us up, you know, holding us up and holding up the, the spaces of, um, of, uh, of joy. Yeah. And, yeah. and the beauty that still exists and still persists and, uh, and that still, is there it's not that it's vanished it's just that you know we have kind of a, a force that's um part of that maybe i don't know i just like you know we think about the the rose bush having thorns and such and how as human beings where we see the thorn as being negative but it it actually is part of the rose you know it's part of the the beauty of the rose you know that it contains within itself mm -hmm. that destructive force or that 
potentially destructive force. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's ever had really deep, intimate contact with nature yeah. um, can see nature as creator-destroyer, yeah. right? the two hand-in-hand. Hand I mean, anywhere in nature, right, you're also seeing, um, you're seeing the forces of uh, chaos at play. You're seeing the forces of... Um, destruction mm. you know whether it's just like leaves rotting on the ground or yeah. you know animal one animal eating another yeah right it's um i i don't think we can um be too idyllic or naive about mm. it right um yeah and i think definitely i've i've talked a little bit about uh I, I gave an interview uh to fish out of agua which is actually another show fish out of agua which is another show on radio for brooklyn and they're going to be airing that, I believe, tomorrow at 3 p.m. for those listening. But, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about my own struggle with depression and, and anxiety and stuff like that and uh, and all these different issues that I dealt with. And how, um, you know, my realization was that having faith in the, in the process and uh, the process, the creative process and also the psychological process that we talked a little bit about with uh, uh, the ability to un- unfold one's own state of being through uh, writing and through dreams and through... Um, these various processes. So being able to have faith in that, that not necessarily things are going to be the way, you know, you perceive them or we I perceive them or the way we think they're going to be, but we should have faith that things will unfold as they're meant to be, perhaps, or as they are, that there's a greater meaning than what we can understand or perceive, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's such a, I think, a sense of serenity that comes with um, just surrendering to that. Yeah. And also the transient of all those, transient nature of all those spaces, right? I mean, I think that that's something, such a profound teaching also from um, Buddhist practice, right? That like even these spaces which feel like when you're in it, right? Like in fear or in the the grief you know or in depression yeah. like oh this this is the deep truth and i'm going to be in this forever yeah like well it, it, it like everything else shifts you yeah. know and i think for me that's been such a healing practice in terms of staying with different emotional or psychological spaces is that like even the most painful of them like move you know if as as you're saying if we just observe the process and allow it to um to kind of have its own wisdom mm. and then yeah we end up like in ultimately in places we never could have imagined i think yeah, I think definitely like when we have that, we engender in ourselves the silent witness or the, the observer. Um, that's helped me a lot because uh, the more objective stand, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the emotions of I want this or I need this or I, I you know, I, uh, this kind of thing that in certain situations we're struggling or grasping at results. And, uh, you know, I think that when we kind of engender in ourselves this kind of witness, this objective witness who looks at it kind of more like, you know, in the large, that's a little bit of a bigger picture look that then we're able to kind of be more forgiving of ourselves and our own flaws and, and the situation, the limits of that situation. And remember that we're all in similar situations that we share that, um, you know, that commonality of human experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, to hold yourself in that as you would hold someone you deeply love. Yeah. If someone else would come to you with this. The same problem that you had, how would you console them or how would exactly. you counsel them? Yeah. Yeah. The same way you would counsel yourself and, and be able to engender that, you know? Um, yeah, we talked a little bit about Jungian um, psychology. And it's interesting when we think about it. I remember in college, the big uh, the big debate was Freud versus Jung. And, you know, it was always a, a very interesting uh, discussion and, and how Jung had brought it, brought to the step psychology and brought, brought us to this place of. Um, you know, the uh, collective unconscious and, and all these kinds of themes 
that people can explore through Madness Symbols, I think was the major one I read. And uh, a lot of his work is just so amazing and, and how we're able to connect with that, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting um, uh, comment. Yeah, I had a really wonderful class at Pacifico on Freud, actually, and uh-huh. the goal of the class was to dismantle the Freudian dichotomy uh-huh. and to study Freud's work from, as you know, from a depth psychological perspective uh-huh. and kind of bring that beauty forth because I think we can think of him being, you know, kind of really rational and, and Jung being the one that brought in yeah. the, the, the talking about the soul. Yeah. But what this professor, at least her stance, was very much that Freud um, offered that very fully as well. They must have had some overlap since they were working together a long time. And then, Absolutely. And then they had a, a split of some kind. Yeah. Kind of like the Beatles before the Beatles, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, you know, the pre-Beatles, uh, they seemed like, for me at least, uh, in college and such, they seemed like. They were kind of the rock stars of my uh, education and such. Exactly. Yeah. I feel so much gratitude toward both of them. I mean, especially yeah. now, I think, in like the contemporary climate around conversations around um, psychology. Yeah. It, it's so scientific and like hyper focused on like what what is your brain? What is your brain's response to certain stimulus? Or, yeah. You know, and um, and also like a kind of cognitive um, behavioral solution to yeah. most problems, and I, I find that a really frustrating approach because um, it's like it feels like it puts the cart before the horse, so to speak. Like yeah. I think focusing too intensely on what's going on, like in terms of brain chemistry, um, we're really missing like actually where we inhabit um, ourselves as human beings, which is I think in our soul lives. And actually, in, in you know, as you mentioned, the heart and in the body, and yeah. Um, so, so I was going to say that Freud seems to the Freud's relevance today seems to be in that toxic sexuality, like how you know we just came off Democracy Now, how you know all this uh, pent up stuff seems to be coming out that uh, you know in the Kavanaugh hearings and all these kinds of things about how people deal with their sexuality, people process their sexuality, and people. Um, you know, kind of talk about their sexuality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. I mean, I think doing a Freudian analysis of yeah. just the cultural unconscious right now yeah. would be really fascinating. Just looking at how family dynamics are playing out in this wider political sphere. Exactly, exactly. Right. Freud um, would be having a field day today. Yeah, <laughs> he would really be loving the amount of analysis he could do on uh, this culture at large and. And how, you know, we like to think we've come so far from the Victorian era, but I don't think that far, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's really important, too, to, like, consider how the culture is its own organism, right? Mm. Society is its own organism, and it, too, has a, has a an unconscious, right? And yeah. it has a psyche, and it has um, wounding, it has um, blind spot, right? All of that. And so, I mean, we're individuals within that, but then we're also participating in this wider organism which you know right now um is has certainly a lot of unconscious pieces yeah yeah and uh we talked a little bit about how um you know uh about personal political and such that's a big theme of the show and how we are um connected that our works matters that our our ideas and all of our inner experiences matter no matter what you know people have this idea that oh it's just a private space in my in my opinion that all of our most personal and private things, they, they, they ultimately, you can't hide. The, I think they say uh, three things you can't hide, the sun, the moon, and the truth. So these kinds of things that what's inside of us 
ultimately comes out and 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 is affecting the larger whole mm-hmm. so uh, what do you what is your thoughts on that or about the yeah oh uh, i absolutely agree i mean i think it's a really powerful form actually of political action to be mm-hmm. doing really deep inner work yeah. you know and so that when we then go into the world we're acting from a place of integrity and we're we're speaking truth and um we're um connecting with others from a place of love you know and i think that um where, I mean, you can see very obviously the the repercussions of when we are not acting from that place, right? And um, I think that if there were more focus on our culture on doing that inner work, like a real, on a really deep soul level, also with also that connection to the earth, you know, which is so essential and so healing, mutually healing, um, I don't think we could possibly have a political system that looks like it does right now. You yeah. Know? So... Um, I, I think in so many ways the crises are calling us back to our center and um, calling us back to to our soul life, calling us back to our creative life um, and really like reminding us to connect to that that anchor inside ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know there are many ways of being um, in, in, engaged in creating change and I think that's um, in different people of different work and some people's work is to go out there and, you know, be really involved in activism. And I think, um, you know, for others, it's it's much more of like that that inner journey. And yeah. I feel like for me, it's definitely um, such a, that is like the, the native engagement is like, yeah. okay, what can I do? Like, you know, in my daily practice, what can I do in my immediate sphere? What can I do like in my writing practice? Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. I think people don't realize that there's a resonance with just how we handle day-to-day interactions, mm-hmm. that these these are the ripple effect, that if we are able to manage and, and our own psychology and what's going on in our minds, that then we can then ripple outwards, hopefully, and, and, and see that effect in the way in which uh, larger conflicts and, and uh larger dialogues are being handled. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think, for example, like I mean, I think the 12-step programs are such a powerful example of this, right? Because, you know, AA started out with just a couple alcoholics, like yeah. trying to help them themselves and each other, you know, be in recovery. And it, from there, it's like grown to this international um, fellowship and that there's 12-step programs for all kinds of different addictions. And I think what happens there is that, you know, there are, people who are simply committed to that inner work for their your, their own healing, right? But then what happens is then the commitment is to practice these principles in all our affairs, right? So mm. after working through the 12 steps, and it's just starting out, like so many of us just come in with that desire to um, heal, you know, to heal and to just be functional in the world and to mm. um, be able to, you know, quote unquote, like manage our addictions, right? And like, but ultimately through that journey of working in 12 steps, um, you come to the 12th step, right? Which is to like go out and like carry the message, practice these principles. And I, and so then I think you have a lot of people going out into the world who having done that, that deep work of healing themselves ultimately interact with the world from um, a place of, of authenticity and integrity mm. and love, you know? Mm. So I think just that's such an interesting model and, you know, I think that's been like such a success in terms of the 12 steps and um, programs. And I'm wondering, you know, is that is there something useful in that that can be used in other arenas as well? Yeah, um, I definitely think that um, there's a power. I talk a little bit about how 
improv, the philosophy of improv and agreement has uh, improved my life because I think philosophically, I'm still trying to negotiate how this operates, but I think that a lot of times we feel like we have to contest things. You know, we have to go against things. We have to be like, oh, you feel this, but I feel the against, I feel the opposite, or I feel, you know, differently, or I feel that, or, you know, A and then B, you know, I got to feel uh, not A or something like that. But rather we have to build on things and acknowledge that people are coming from, when people are coming from truthful places, that we understand, we listen, we hear them, and then we want to build on that. So I think that, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, with the, when people have found their personal truth, not to negate that, but rather to enhance and, and add something, yes, and, or to add something to that. Like say, yes, I understand, you know, what you're coming from, and, and, I, I, and I'm adding something to that picture. Um, and I think that a lot of times when people go through their struggles and such, being able to identify how we've gone through struggles similar or empathy and such like that and be able to add to that conversation. Yeah, mm, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that as you start to wind down, I just want to say um, there was also one quote in uh, one of your um, manuscripts. Let me see if I can pull it up. But basically it had to do with um, that which disempowers us. Uh, do, you, do you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so is that, that the, one? Yeah. the beginning of this? Yeah, it's the beginning of this manuscript, I believe. Um, it was a really interesting, that's which disempowers you is unfit for your song. And it seems to, uh, and then also before that, there was another quote uh, from the Talmud. That was from, uh, the disempowers quote is from Odysseus, um, Odysseus? Yeah, Odysseus Lydus, he's a Lydus. Greek poet. Yeah. Oh, Greek poet, okay. Mm-hmm. And the Talmud has all law, civil and religious, has its own purpose, the promotion of human life. When it ceases to serve that end, it becomes obsolete and must be superseded. And then followed by that, that which disempowers, disempowers you is unfit for your song. Can you talk a little bit about how like that speaks to you? I think that was very interesting. A little bit of the meaning of that? or Sure, yeah. yeah. So I, I chose these two quotes um, as I was beginning to write this manuscript for the epigraphs. Um, because I was really thinking about like what is the personal relationship to the political, right? Yeah. That's the theme of the show. And um, what is our obligation, right? What is our primary obligation? Mm. Is it to follow along, right? Is it to follow laws? Is it to follow um, the structures of our society? Um, and at what point um, is it actually... Does is there more integrity in kind of opting out or turning away and following other maybe perhaps deeper laws? Yeah. And so I started to think about that as I, um, you know, more and more have lost faith in our political system. Yeah. Um, like, okay, so what what laws am I following here? You know, mm-hmm. obviously the laws of nature inescapable, right? Like, what is my own internal compass saying? Um, and also how can that be an act of resistance you know yeah. like you're talking about like that that yes yes of improv right and I think that that's so important and then there's also that the no right yeah. so I think that's such a question of discernment of like if I'm saying no I refuse this yeah what am I saying yes to right so if I part of um you know if part of the a political action might be opting out of certain modes of thought Right, or certain engagements, what can I turn to and say, like, yes, I'm going to foster this instead, right? And that might be, like you're saying, you know, we were talking about before, that heart connection. It might be an ecological relationship. It might be building community. It might be certain actions in my personal life. Um, so that that was that. And then in terms of the um, that second quote, that which disempowers you is unfit for your song, that was really a question about... Um, 
you know, like myself and so many of the poets that I'm friends with, we were talking about at the time of like, how do we how do we continue writing and it, what is the role of poetry and does poetry matter in the face of um, everything that's going on? And so that was about like this commitment to like, what am I writing about that's not just feeding the catastrophe, right? But um, a con- but coming to continually commit to um, to what is nurturing and um, coming to commit to that place of the sacred. Um, yeah, good, good. I think it's so true that, and I hope that our listeners will, um, you know, take this opportunity to think about and connect with in the in these episodes or in previous episodes what these what our speakers are talking about so that then they can connect themselves in their own personal power space and be able to find a moment or find a practice that will an ongoing practice that will be able to help them with um, their day-to-day life and these kinds of choices that say I'm going to practice patience and I'm going to for this week uh, just be patient with others and be patient with myself and and these kinds of things just pick a practice and try to commit to it and that specific choice of saying yes to one thing means could include in it uh, disregarding or uh, or discarding uh, certain practices that you might have previously, but saying yes to something. I think it's so easy to get caught in the know that we want to know that we're saying yes to something else. And I think I totally agree with that. I think that's what I was trying to express, that we're trying to, it's always focusing on what we're saying yes to rather than engaging that, that conflict or that tension about, I don't want that, I don't want that. I don't, well, what do you want? You know, And then try to find where we're going towards. So... Um, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for being here, being with us. Um, thank you. Thank you. It was um, a great pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. So I'm going to uh, tell a little, little bit of the listeners about Ready Free Brooklyn. Ready Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mis- mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. To help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us to continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, also, there's going to be an after-school program, which I've been announcing in the past couple of shows. Ready for Brooklyn is proud to announce that we are launching an after-school program for local teenagers in 2019 to learn media literacy and media making using hands-on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd um, be interested in participating or donating to this program, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash after school and remember all donations are tax deductible. Okay. Um, also, know if you're listening on the um, web, the web player, you know that we also have uh, apps on iPhone and Android. And uh, you can go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash iPhone or readyforbrooklyn.org slash Android. Just search for it in the, in the Play Stores. Um, so I'm going to take us out with um, a song. Um, you know, I have this song that um, is by Frigga, uh, Flower, Flower. Um, and uh, it brings awareness and shares her, the, the singer brings awareness and shares her deepest learned lessons through the music she plays in an album that has been recorded in 432 hertz, also known as the love frequency, scientifically known to bring healing and rejuvenation to the body. So it should be really interesting. Uh, I think it's a very nice song, and I hope you guys will enjoy it. And tune in next week, every Monday at uh, 8 a.m. 
Uh, so we play every Monday at 8 a.m. And then you can find out more at readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. Thanks so much. Thank you. Let me just... Uh,